Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project is a podcast about the relationships that we have with our bodies. I cannot even begin to explain how excited I am to introduce to you today's guest, Hillary McBride. Oh my gosh, I had like a fangirl moment when I got a response to an email about asking her to be on the podcast because Hillary is honestly, I think, the most perfect person to speak on the subject of our relationships with our bodies, which is clearly the concept of this podcast. So I learned so much. I read her book called Mother's Daughters and Body Image recently. And back when I was in treatment, I read her book, Embodiment and Eating Disorders, which she did some research on. We kind of talk about that book as a very tough read. So if you are into textbooky type things, please go for it. I don't even know where to begin when I talk about what we talked about during the interview because it's just so good. But I guess as a brief summary, we talked a lot about eating disorders, treatment. She goes into how eating disorders are a way to restore social power as women and how people with eating disorders, she has been told they are called philosophy queens, which makes so much sense. You'll hear more about that. We go into that. We go into aging women's bodies. We go into eating disorders, how they show a larger cultural problem, disembodiment, decolonization, how do we become a whole in a system that has us continually fractioning ourselves and our relationships with each other. That on top of attachment theory, social modeling, so many things that will take me another hour just to explain to you what we were talking about. So instead of listening to me list this stuff off, please just enjoy this interview that I had the honor of doing with Hillary McBride. If you guys are enjoying the Unity Project podcast and you want to support and get more involved, then I would be so, so honored and just thankful if you went over to my Patreon page for the Unity Project where you can give as little as $1 a month and become a big part of why I get to actually make this podcast and to help me continue to make this podcast and continue having these really cool interviews about topics that I really think are going to change the world if we talk about more. Or you can go pick up a copy of my book, Finding Home. You can do that at my website, JackieGronland.com. Or if you can't afford to support me financially, that is absolutely okay. Leaving a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to podcasts, that helps so, so much more than I think we give credit to. So any of those things are wonderful. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. How is it going over there in Canada? (laughs) (laughs) Going well. I don't know what the climate is like where you are, but I'm in Vancouver, BC, and we, from October to April, pretty much have, it's a rainforest here in the Pacific Northwest. And so it is dark and the days are short and cold and it is raining constantly. And yet this morning, beautiful blue sky, 
uh, the sun is out, the birds are chirping. And so <laughs> if you were here in Vancouver, you would, you would hear everybody talking about the weather today. Cause this is like an, a kind of unusual midwinter treat for us. So I woke up on the very much on the right side of the bed this morning. Oh, good. That is refreshing <laughs> yeah. and good it to is. hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, these man. little wins in the midst of like all of the grief and losses and challenges that are happening in our world. And I know for you in particular in the U S and uh, we are we are getting good this year, at least I am, at noticing the little wins and celebrating them and taking them in. So today, yeah. that's a sunny day. Oh, that is amazing and so good and helpful to hear, especially like you're saying, today's time in the U.S. And I'm not obviously as familiar with Canadian politics and whatnot, but speaking from down here, it is right. rough times. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's so cool to be able to find little things that that we love and make us smile. So I'm happy to hear that. Vancouver's beautiful. I've it spent is. like maybe two days total there, but definitely somewhere I want to go back. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, yes. we'd love to have you anytime you come. Amazing. Well, Hillary, I, well, for those listening, I'm super, super excited for this interview. I've thought about it since we planned it, I think like two mm. or so months ago, because um, for those who don't know, Hillary is an incredible writer and speaker and therapist and researcher and someone who I have learned so much from specifically about the topic of the body. And it's cool. Actually, I heard of you. I knew who you were from the internet, but a therapist of mine at um, a treatment center I was at for an eating disorder last year actually told me about you. She's the one who told me about your embodiment and eating disorders book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so ever since then, I've just been like... Just total info seeking, taking in mode. It's been Ooh, so fun. Well, you, I think you get an award for for getting through that because that I don't. I rarely even talk about that textbook because it is so. Uh, there is so much in it. There's neuroscience, there's theory, there's empirical research. Um, there's kind of the nuance and discourse around bodies and how they're constructed socially in Western contexts. And that is, that's a little bit of a kind of um, different reading than you might pick up the the average Friday night when you're reading a good <laughs> book. So well done for you for persisting. And yet there is so much on this topic that we can get into and volumes and volumes and volumes should be written, have been written. Um, so there's lots of places for us to go, but that's really cool that it found its way into your hands in that context. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I'm a total like brain science nerd as of, mm -hmm. I think like a year and a half or two years ago. So it was right up my alley, but definitely a different, more difficult read than I was used to at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but well done so, for powering through. <laughs> yes. But anyway, to, to start off the podcast, I normally ask all my guests to describe the relationship that they have with their body and then to mm -hmm. talk about a time that they felt they were the most disconnected from their body. Mm -hmm. Okay. So today in this moment, um, and I, I'll contextualize that by saying I, like the beauty of bodies is that they are temporal they exist we exist in relationship to our bodily selves over time and so it can change from moment to moment and tonight it might feel different and this morning it might have felt different but in this moment i feel a sense of um uh, intimacy might be the right word but almost that kind of intimacy where where the 
the difference between you and the other entity feel so um, dissolved that there is a kind of unison. And I've worked really hard in my life on getting to the place where I don't see my body as something separate than me. So Mm -hmm. when I think about the question, what is my relationship to my body? I think more about what does it just mean to be me in this moment and how tuned in to my sensory cues am I? How compassionate am I around responding to them? How am I nurturing myself as a being? But I have really moved away from seeing myself as a mind and the body is the thing that carries my mind around and more to be a sense of self that is somatic and anchored and temporal and relational uh, with sensory qualities, but um, yeah, unified in that way. So that's how I feel in this moment. And I I feel the joy in saying that because I know it hasn't always felt that way. Mm -hmm. And I also know that um, I carry a lot of pain in my body. And so sometimes at different points in, in the day, it feels useful to disconnect a little bit more, or that feels like a survival strategy or something I've done in the past. But right now I'm feeling really deeply in tune with myself and feeling present and um, awake and alert to sensation. Ah, that is a beautiful answer. And unlike any of the other answers that I've heard on here and oh. so, <laughs> so good to, to hear. And it makes so much sense after reading your book on kind of the the duality that's really mm. common between mind and body and how that's right. the goal for i guess i guess moving towards recovery for eating disorders or really just any kind of strategy like you mentioned that we've used to disconnect is to mm-hmm. bring them back together mm-hmm. so that was very cool um, yeah. So do you want to talk about a time yeah. when you felt the most disconnected to your body and kind of like what the beginning of this journey, even noticing your body looked mm-hmm. like? Mm-hmm. There are many moments that stand out. And the irony is that some of the moments when I felt awareness of the disconnection from my body is when I was actually starting to reconnect again. So when I think about tra- the trajectory, it's like, um, I think about mar- I'm married and I think about marriage and long-term partnership because I do so much clinical work with people who are doing this reconnecting with their partner thing. And it's almost like when two people who have been disconnected from themselves are aware enough to recognize the disconnection, there is already a sense of naming the process and the desire and the longing to return to each other. And so when I think about being disconnected from my body, it's almost like there were these gaps where I didn't even know I had a body or was a body. And then moments I can remember specific ones in therapy, in treatment and whatnot, where I realized, oh my gosh, I, I should be able to feel that in my body, or I should know that, or I should, wow, there's a whole other way of being a self that I don't have access to. But it was moments where it was clicking in a way that was returning me to myself. So the moments of recognition of disconnection actually feel really deeply symbolic of my journey to return home to my bodily selves. And yet when I look, my bodily self, I should say, when I look back in my history, there was, you know, a very long period of time where I didn't know I had a body and I didn't know I I I didn't want a body and I had become so fragmented and dissociative. So, so disconnected that, 
and I felt successful in doing so. And that was prized and rewarded culturally as my body disappeared. There was something that actually felt um, safe and steady and controlled and known about this erasure of my body. So for me, what that meant is years and years and years of disordered eating and the treatment and then the kind of uh, the d- avoidance of treatment and denial of treatment and trying to run away from what was being asked of me in those settings and asked of my family as they were worried about me. But it it didn't feel disconnected. It just felt like survival or it just felt like control or it just felt like being a good woman, being everything I was supposed to be. And I, I don't think I was aware of the disconnection until, until later. Yeah. Yeah. That journey sounds so um, human and so <laughs> familiar to me when you talk about it being a strategy for survival. Uh, my, my therapist here in Nashville talks a ton about the concept of an eating disorder being a strategy to stay alive and to get mm-hmm. to the next day and how like oh, yeah. seeing it as something that like is like, like, you know, that narrative of like Ed, the bad boyfriend, and you just like hate your eating disorder. And right. Right. That and how that like is or can be unhelpful because the lens of compassion of looking at that, like it was helping me then, but it doesn't serve me anymore now is incredibly mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, what, what you were saying about um, kind of like what it was helping you with was reminding me what you wrote about uh, restoring social power mm-hmm. and how we use eating disorders to do that in a way. Would you want to oh, talk? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll introduce the idea uh, I mentioned previously, but I can talk just momentarily for a little bit longer about it. The idea is that our bodies are ours, right? As I was mentioning, and my body is me and the sense of being a body and being connected to my bodily self, my sensory cues is a very individual uh, lifelong journey that we are on. And yet our bodies are also enculturated. So our bodies exist in social spaces that accrue or are stripped of social power based on how we code which bodies are valuable or not. So we know from looking at media, which is like, it's kind of the easy trope when we're looking at like bad body messages, we can just look at media and say, Wow, look at which bodies are idealized in order to support a capitalist agenda and suggest we should buy a desirable product. Well, those bodies have this skin color and they have this degree of ableism and they have this degree of um, attractiveness as defined by our culture. And they, you know, they move through space in this way. And so we are given these messages and they're reinforced constantly about which bodies are desirable. And one of the narratives that is constantly reinforced about bodies in North America and Western context is that white bodies, bodies that are thin, bodies that are fertile, bodies that are sexualized, but not overly sexual, bodies that are uh, youthful, bodies that are able, all of these kinds of bodies are given more access to social space. And so there can be a kind of bartering of social power that occurs as we notice 
what happens when we change our body and what that does to the reactions of people around us. So a pretty typical phenomena in the eating disorder literature that's reported is, you know, there is some sort of bodily insecurity or the body doesn't feel safe or like a, a lovely home to be in that can sometimes be because of appearance or trauma or pain or, you know, fill in the blank here. And so we manipulate the body. We, we control, we adjust the body. And then there is a social social response to that people praise praise you all of a sudden there is less of your body and people go wow you look great did you lose weight <laughs> or mm. wow you look this way oh my gosh wow i could never such and such and so the social response reinforces that your body is desirable and in doing so often what it does is it it kind of accommodates for places in our life where we might have not felt social power. For example, if the body has been a place where we have felt shame or judgment or unsafety or trauma, all of a sudden the shifting of the body to appear more like the appearance ideal in our culture gives us this ticket into social value. Now, Mm -hmm. the irony, if we step back and see the whole context is that typically Women's bodies in particular, bodies that are coded or read or self-identified as women, are less valuable socially except for how they look in their body. And so there is both a simultaneous devaluing and valuing of the woman because of this adherence to to the appearance ideal. And that creates often this sense of impossible... Oh gosh, this impossible game to play where where we're trying to accrue social power, be valuable, be desirable, be good, be praised. And also it's because we're told that your body is the only way to do that in our culture. Mm. That's so interesting to me because it, it feels like it just kind of feels like you're trapped in a corner because yeah part of my mind when I hear that things, well, then I just don't want anything to do with my body. Like I don't want to be in it. And the other part of my mind is like, oh, but I need my body to be this, look like this for any kind of life. It's, oh, that's so frustrating. I get so angry when I hear people talk about it. Yeah. And you know, where it often comes up most, and this is really, I think really underexplored phenomena that I'll be writing about probably more in future projects. But my doctoral dissertation work looked at aging women's bodies and women who felt embodied and free as they aged. Now, the paradigm here that I think is worth naming is that the aging female body typically has been pathologized within the medical context. So the aging female body is seen as useless. It's like a dysfunctional male body because if women, as I'm using major air quotes here, are only useful in their bodies for their reproduction or what their bodies can do for other people and they're no longer considered a sex object or fertile, then what is the point of the aging female body? So for us to disrupt the discourse around the aging female body and talk about women's embodiment as they age is to to name a particular kind of resistance that's at play. And what happens as women age typically, there's this one sample of women who I looked at in particular who around the time of menopause noticed their bodies were changing significantly. I mean, fat storage changes, uh, vaginal lubrication changes, hormone distribution changes. I mean, there's just thing after thing after thing. And these women had said, wow, I can't, even if I want to play the game around appearance ideals, I can't anymore. I can't, my body has its own agenda. And the thing I've indoctrinated with myself, I've indoctrinated myself with 
I can't use to control my body anymore. And there was two responses to that. There was try harder or give up on the game, right? Like dabble Mm -hmm. down, get the surgery, change the body, work harder, corset the body, control the body, subdue the body, or this other group of people who said, whoa, this is my ticket into freedom. This is my ticket out of the game that I've been conditioned to play since puberty or before. Now, within that subsection of people who say, I want out of that game, there are some people who are like, well, I just don't want to be a body. And like, this is really hard and this sucks. And if I, if I can't win at the body game, I'm just going to disconnect from my body altogether. But for another group of people, they said, how does this bring me deeper in tune with myself? What other information has been available to me this whole time that I haven't been able to pay attention to because I've been so preoccupied with evaluating my appearance or changing my appearance or judging my appearance or trying to accrue this social power? What happens if I go inside of my bodily self to realize that all along there has been wisdom, there has been safety, there has been a deep knowing about what is right. There has been joy and pleasure. And I've missed those things in their complexity because I've been so preoccupied with other things. So when we start to, I mean, to your point, when we start to notice like how frustrating this double bind is, we get to engage with a thoughtful question of, so what do I want to do now? And maybe there's another way And I might suggest that the other way is in, the other way is through, the other way is to be in the body more fully, and not in a sense that has us managing what we look like, but in a way that brings us in tune with ourself and allows us to engage in a resistance of that double bind the culture invites us into. Mm. Wow, that was, that's so interesting to me. I know that you you do a lot of or I'm not sure, actually, do you do a lot of interviews with women? I just finished your um, Mother's Daughters and mm-hmm. Body Image book. So judging from that, I feel like you do, but I'm not sure. Is the the talk that you were having with this this lady about menopause, is that like a common conversation that you have? Well, it's most of what I did my doctoral research on. So for about four years of my PhD, I asked these specific questions and researched this in depth with a large sample of women of varying ethnic identities and um, socioeconomic statuses and whatnot. So I've had for, yeah, for a few years, some pretty thorough, in-depth, rigorous, research-based and and scientific-based conversations with people about this phenomena. Wow. That sounds yeah. like so much fun to me. <laughs> yeah, right. When you're so, researching the right thing, it is just like, oh, I could do this all day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Did you, did you get very interested in this um, recently or growing up? I know that you wrote a bit about an eating disorder that you had when you were younger. Was that yeah. kind of what led you into this world or what did that mm-hmm. look like? Yeah. So I had... Um, I had an eating disorder for about 15 years and was in and out of inpatient and outpatient residential um, individual. I mean, all the different kinds of treatments that you, as you know, are available to us. There is because of the particular complexity, the medical complexity of eating disorders, there's often a a lot of different treatment routes that you can go. But I was... um, extraordinarily treatment resistant. I know that that's the case for many people because I didn't want, I didn't want to get better. The eating disorder was working for me. And there was also a lot of pain in feeling like that 
meant or signaled to some people that I was shallow, uh, that for, for some reason I was you know, overly fixated on looking a certain way. And yet for me, the eating disorder was partially about my body. And as you had said, also not really about my body at all. It was, it was about surviving. And there was some pretty monumental experiences I had in the last time I came out of treatment or was in an an outpatient treatment center with a therapist who really started to help me see myself differently. And she yeah, she supported me to get angry at the systems that give us these scripts around our bodies. And instead of me feeling like I was the pathology, I was the person with the diagnosis, I was the person who was broken, I really encountered myself for the first time as a truth teller, as somebody who was living through my pain and through the label of this disorder, something that was wrong with our cultural landscapes, that my body was speaking up, that my symptoms were speaking up, and that I wasn't broken. I was a prophet. I was telling the truth. I was, um, you know, as my therapist at that time often called women with eating disorders, a philosopher queen. I was making, trying to make sense of what it means to be human and to be a body and to feel pain in the world. And it was through my anger that I started getting involved in feminist consciousness raising and womanist consciousness raising literature and groups and started to realize that this was symptomatic of a larger cultural problem. And so that was, you know, after my undergrad, that I really started having that breakthrough and decided to go back to graduate school and get my master's and started studying our relationships with our bodies and my master's and then throughout my doctoral work continued that. And so one of my areas of research specialty is what it means to be related to and experience our bodies across the lifespan. So everything from puberty to these transitions that happen in life, like um, the perinatal transition. So what happens when your body is changing again through midlife in sexuality, in, um, kind of later end of life stages and across this whole continuum of the journey of being human, how does being a body figure into that? So it really came from my own reckoning with my personal pain and seeing, learning to see the disorder that I had been given or labeled with the diagnosis or say that I had been given as, as not as much about me as about the way that I was speaking to a cultural phenomenon. And as I've engaged in more and more and more research about the topic, it becomes increasingly clear that disembodiment is a phenomena of settler colonial and white communities and and cultural contexts, that disembodiment in this particular way that we have it manifested where we praise ourselves from being disconnected from the body and living up in the mind is not a universal phenomena. It's it's something that shows up in different cultural spaces based on the paradigms and the values and the systemic influences that talk about who is desirable, who has power, uh, who gets to make decisions. And so really all of that has just fueled my understanding of embodiment as a, a really important avenue for doing decolonizing work, for doing um, kind of like anti-white supremacist work and for understanding how we become whole in a system that has us continually fracturing ourselves and our relationships with each other. Oh, wow. I love that you tie that into white supremacy and decolonization and 
all the systems that really just are here to control and to mm. disempower and disembody and how it all kind of ties together. That was such such a helpful thing that I learned was that it's so much bigger than just like, I don't like the way my body looks. Right. It's right. so much bigger than that. And you do such an incredible job talking through that in the the big research book that was i think the first time i really understood the concept of embodiment and how mm. kind of like the difference between um body image and embodiment and how yeah. an eating disorder is like about my experience in a body and and the way you talked about i think i remember reading the the thing you said about your therapist calling you a philosophy queen is that what you said yeah philosopher queen yeah <laughs> philosopher queen <laughs> yeah. i love that cuz when you say truth teller that reminds me so much of uh, so much that Glennon Doyle writes. She's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And there's this story that she tells. I th- oh, gosh. I think it's like a dove in a coal mine. Where, yeah. Yeah. He like, oh, I don't remember the story now. So unfortunately, but how we're kind of like the sign that something is wrong and an eating That's disorder. Right. Yeah, how you say it's like it's supposed to show the world that the systems are messed up. We're not messed up, but we're living in mm. messed up systems. And I love that mm. so, so much. Mm-hmm. It's been so helpful for me and so many other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talk a lot about uh, attachment theory and work. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a central part of my clinical work and how I understand people and development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is one of my favorite topics. Um, Mm. Something my therapist said to me when I first started working with her is that a lot of my healing or the majority of my healing is going to come from our relationship versus Mm -hmm. like any kind of textbook that I would read. And that didn't make any sense to me when she first said it. (laughs) I was like, what is that supposed to mean? This is weird. (laughs) Um, But now that I'm learning so much more about attachment work and what it means to build healthy attachment versus experiences that we had growing up if we had unhealthy attachment styles with our parents. Uh, Do you want to talk a bit more about that and kind of how the, I guess, for example, the relationship between the mother and the daughter will influence her, her relationship with her body and kind of what that looks like down the road? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So there's a few things I'll hit in here based on your question. One of them's attachment and the other one's social modeling, uh, which comes under the category of social learning theory or social cognitive theory. But attachment is is kind of a confusing word for people who haven't gotten familiar with the literature because we we use attachment in other ways too, like in spiritual contexts, in growth work, people will often talk about attachments as being a bad thing. Like you're too, you're too tied up in getting that thing that you want, or you're, you're too convinced that having that thing that you want will make you happy or will make you free. So attachment in this context doesn't mean that it means the map that our brain has learned to create about how we show up in relational and social spaces. And that map has been given to us based on the map that was created by our early relational experiences. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like my favorite way of understanding this is you're born into a family and you have no idea where you are and how to navigate things and what it's okay to feel and who you are. Like You don't even know your name. You don't know how to talk. You don't know anything. And your family gives you a map. And the map says, you know, when you get to the end of the street, turn left or Here's as far as you can go. Anything outside of this is the dangerous forest. 
or this is what we expect of you. Take these routes, go this path, and this is what home looks and feels like. So if you can follow with me in this kind of metaphor of the map, we're not necessarily talking about left and right turns. We're talking about the decisions that we make about relationship that become implicit. So we're given a story about how to show up in the world, about what's normal, how to do conflict, how much we can stay, if we're going to be safe, if we share ourselves, how to manage pain, um, what boundaries are okay, if you can even set boundaries, how you set boundaries. And all of that stuff is handed down to us in an experiential way. Not all of those things are verbally discussed. A lot of them just happen. And in fact, our families don't even know that they're happening because it takes a lot of awareness to be conscious of your own attachment style. And so we're getting this this story about how to be human in an unconscious way. And what's really important to realize about this that I think most, most of us don't know, we weren't taught in school, is that our brain is an experientially dependent organ in its development. All of that is to say, or like another way of saying that, is what we experience actually shapes the structure and the function of our neural tissue. We're born with billions and billions and billions of neurons, and based on what we do and what happens to us and how people look at us and talk and express feelings, our brain starts to learn, oh, we don't need those extra neurons over there. We can cut that off and reinforce these ones because this is a pathway we're going to use a lot in life. And it actually shapes the structure and function of our anatomical tissue. Then what happens is we get into life and we're kind of like going through a teen years and we're going through adulthood and we realize, wait a second, my partner doesn't have the same map as me. Or wait a second, my maps has turned left here, but my boss is asking me to turn right. What do I do? Or all of a sudden I have this conflict, but, you know, I, the people around me are telling me to do this or show up this way, or they're telling me it's safe to go into that forest. But I was told all my whole growing up years, don't go into that forest. It's dangerous. So attachment and the work of understanding attachment theory is our job and our responsibility as adults to realize that we were handed a map to be reflective of how that map shapes how we show up and to do some of the healing work to realize oh, that map was great in 1987, but it does not work for 2021. Or (laughs) that map was really great when I was with my mom and my dad, but it doesn't work when I'm with my partner and we're trying to build something around, you know, resolving conflict differently. And the self-awareness to go, okay, what's my map? What do I want to do? What's coming up in me? And notice our reactions as symbolic or signaling of what has been typical for us in the past really helps us start to change those things in the moment to moment that they're happening. As it relates to body image and body experiences, sometimes sometimes we're actually told specific things in our map about what, what kind of bodies are valuable or what we should do or what it means to be in a body that's a bigger size or how to eat or how to eat to comfort yourself or what not to eat, what's bad. And so all of these things implicitly and explicitly are woven into these maps that were handed growing up. And sometimes it just feels so normal to us that we don't even realize that maybe there's another way of doing it until at some point we go, wait a second, I don't feel good in my life. Or I don't, why don't I like my body? And it, it's hard for us to realize that maybe there's nothing wrong with our body. 
Maybe the map that was handed to us was incorrect. Maybe the map said bodies are only valuable if they look and move this way. But you know, that maybe there's actually something that's more true for us or can help us be more free or more connected to ourselves. And it takes undoing some of those stories that we were learned that we learned. But we know about body image in families growing up that uh, there are two pathways that messages about bodies and food are communicated, and that's direct communication and indirect communication. And direct communication is our, our family's way of saying, here are the rules outright. You know, a parent saying to you, don't wear those clothes or those bodies are undesirable. And indirect communication is all those little subtle things that we see our parents do and our siblings do, like you know, complaining when they look in the mirror or, you know, judging other people or judging themselves or how much food they put on their plate compared to how much food they put on other people's plates when they're serving. And so the attachment process and the work that we do as adults is to go, whoa, how come do I have some of these, these rules in my life? And maybe, maybe they're outdated and there's something more for me. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That makes so much sense to me. I, I was reading a lot about a lot about that in your book and found it so interesting when you talked about the the indirect communication of it because there's so many things that come to my mind as I'm sure so many people listening as far as like things that my mom or dad said to me about how a body's supposed to look and how you should dress and etc but then actually going in deeper and being like Oh, but it also communicated to me things saying like my mom on a diet 24 7 or constantly this yeah yeah, and that's so um that feels just really dangerous to me when it's not talked about at all. You you go through a lot of different um stories in the book about uh conversations that mothers and daughters have about different body image issues or mm-hmm. even just like diet culture things that were very very just very wise, I think, just kind of like questioning the things that they're seeing in front of their right. daughter, talking about how that's that's strange that that commercial is making you think right. that this and that. <laughs> <Right>. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What advice, I guess, would you say to those listening? Like, if they had a daughter or like a younger sibling or someone, or yeah. even just how you talk for themselves of how to how to navigate those while still making sure that you are nurturing your own journey with it and not being too hard on yourself for it. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to something that I said right off the top with you, which is our bodies are temporal. They exist in space and time. And we are on a journey in relationship of being a bodily self. And there is there is no expectation that if you are healing your relationship with your bodily self, that that looks perfect. In fact, one of the biggest myths that I had to confront in my eating disorder recovery was the idea that my recovery would look perfect because I understood perfectionism as actually the fruit of the disordered eating in my life. And so I realized if I was going to actually move into a space where I felt like I was in health, I had to let go of the idea that recovery would be perfect. So I want to generously offer anybody who's listening the freedom to be in process in your relationship with your body, which means 
that if you are wanting to love your bodily self, and whether that's appearance or sensation or a sense of comfort or peace or ease, that like any love relationship, we get in conflict at times, we make a repair, we find our way back to each other, things are good. Then sometimes we're like, oh, we have a misunderstanding. <laughs> and we can have that kind of relationship with our bodies too. So there is grace and room and ease in the journey of being in relationship with yourself. Mm. Now, as it comes to talking to other people, the thing that you're specifically referencing is a phenomenon that we call in the research literature, media literacy. And media literacy is our ability to think critically about the implicit messages that are shaping everything around us. And instead of unquestioningly soaking it all in, just kind of taking in whatever image is handed to us as being ideal, pausing for a moment to engage thoughtfully, like, what is the message behind this? And one of my favorite things about coming out of my, that, I, that story I mentioned about really getting into feminist consciousness raising and womanist consciousness raising was that I, I didn't have to do any of that alone. I surrounded myself and was surrounded by a community of women and critical thinkers of all gender identities who were saying, hey, wait a second. What's going on with how bodies are presented in our culture? And the fact that I was questioning that, but I didn't have to question it alone, actually gave me solidarity. It gave me courage to resist. It gave me courage to uh, learn the kinds of things that I hadn't learned. So the conversations that happen between us are how we change culture. But as you mentioned, the conversations that happen between us also shape our healing. We don't do healing intellectually and individually. We do healing in the same way that the wounds happened, which is in relationship. And it's in relationship that we will build the courage to go, okay, there's a bigger story here. And that means taking risks and asking questions and being thoughtful about the media that we consume and noticing the impact that it has on us. So I, I know what it's like to um, get home from work at the end of a very long day and want to check out. But sometimes I don't realize that the media that I consume to check out with actually makes me feel grosser at the end. Like it, I, I'm choosing something because it feels easy and fun and playful. And then I'm like, oh, I just, I felt critical of myself the whole time. Or wow, I actually feel more judgmental as a person after watching that. So being thoughtful about the media we consume, the conversations we have, the things that we hear, the kinds of things that we think, and asking ourselves, how does it make me feel? Does it make me feel more loving towards myself and other bodies and all bodies? Or does it actually pull me further away from my bodily self? Does it make me feel like, I don't know, somehow I need to be different to be valuable? And all of this we can work out in relationships with people who are safe to have these conversations with. Mm. Oh, that makes so much sense to me. Do you think, I know for the longest time, I felt really, really discouraged when it came mm. to like learning about attachment work in and sure. I heard a lot of stuff about how, and I don't know what the actual science is of this, but how mm -hmm. our brains uh, finish, or they, they kind of, the way that they see the world and whatnot and how they're shaped pretty much happens under the age of 10. 
Am I right mm-hmm. about that? Or Oh yeah, there are different waves. So under the age of two is a really significant one. And then under the age of six is a really important one, 12, and then puberty, and then 25 again. Okay. Yeah, Gosh, so there are a few one... chunks, but you're right, so much so, so much is happening under the age okay. of 10. It's like, yeah, it's an important time period. Yeah. And when I learned that for the first time, I felt super discouraged because I was like, oh, so mm. I'm just stuck this way. Then that's how my brain works. But then uh. hearing from people talk about how there's like an opportunity in new relationships with a partner or a friend or yeah. even a therapist later on in life. So you're like a big believer in that being helpful to change the way our brains see ourselves or see the world. Yeah. Relationships, as I mentioned, are the place where the injuries happen and they're the place where the healing can happen. And what we need to remember in the same breath of, yes, under the, you know, the the age of 10 is really critical of what we call a sensitive period. The brain is plastic until the moment we die. Until we take our very last breath, our brain is capable of changing. It is changing um, in a way that takes more thoughtfulness and attention. So we know from social learning theory, we know from all of the cognitive learning theories and the neuroscience of development that to be changing and shaped in our early years is effortless. We don't know anything else, but to undo that is totally possible later in life, but we have to be conscious of it. We have to be thoughtful. So the more attention we can put on something, something we want to do, something we'd like to develop, uh, something that's different between you know what we expected growing up and what is now, the more attention we can give to it, the faster the change is going to happen. And the kind of Dan Siegel phrase that I often use when referencing this is where attention goes, neural firing flows. So when we give our attention to something, our brain goes, hey, that's important. Do that again. Put some resources here. Let's reinforce this. Let's do more of this. So even if we notice something like, oh, I feel safe. Oh, I have a moment of feeling joy in my body. Or like I said this morning, when things are hard, having an awareness of the spontaneous delight that comes from seeing the sunshine, instead of just passing that on or dismissing that, really staying like what, when I feel delight in the blue sky, what do I notice in my body? And can I give attention to those sensations of like energy and openness and warmth? That privilege, oh, my body is good. My body does tell me that I can be safe. My body tells me what I like and what I don't like. And I can I can be aware of that in a way that repairs all of the fragmentation that happened earlier. Oh yeah. What I love how you talk about that. The that actually was one of my favorite parts about your book was at the very end when you were talking about how, and we briefly went into this earlier, I think, but how um, our mind and our body are one. And so mm-hmm. the emotions that we feel, we feel them in our body. And so like right. I get asked all the time when I'm doing like EMDR type stuff is where do you feel that in your body or how does your body feel when you're excited or anxious and all of those things, which I didn't know really went together, but I think he wrote something about it being, let me look in my notes here really quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote, each emotion has a physiological signature and it's our mind's mm-hmm. awareness of that specific pattern or signature that helps us know what we're feeling. That was so interesting to me. Is that kind of your, like, do you mean that for our bodies 
whenever we feel anxious, for example, we'd feel that in our chest and that's just universal. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So there are some, like there, it's a, it's both a universal and a unique and individual phenomena that I'm referencing there. There are some patterns. Uh, this is Paul Ekman's work as well as Antonio Damasio's work um, and Jack Panseps. I always struggle with his last name. These big um, affective neuroscientist scholars and theorists who look at What's going on in terms of the way that emotions wire us towards survival? So we know that things like fear are going to get our heart pumping because they want to help us get out of a dangerous situation. So we're more likely to feel heat. We're more likely to feel activation in our feet. We're more likely to feel a sense of a racing heart. But then there are also situations that are unique and specific to us. So the specific flavor that shows up uh, in my body when I'm feeling delight might be different than yours, but it's probably not going to feel like low energy and sadness. It's probably going to show up in a similar trajectory towards uh, levity and spaciousness internally, and maybe even um, a sense of bubbling in an interior sense and uh, chest up and face up and less like anger, head down, scowling, you know, fists closed. So there are some universal patterns. And again, Paul Ekman's work is great at looking at this and how emotion shows up across culture. And across cultures, including cultures that have not been socialized into Western context or globalized, but also then there's something uniquely special about each of us and how our bodies talk to ourselves and our contexts about what something feels like. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And that's been really helpful for me to recognize specifically anxiety. I think it's harder to recognize like positive feelings and how they feel in my body because mm. I feel less like... Try, I guess aware of like trying to figure it out versus like my chest hurts. Why am I anxious? What's right, going on? Right. Have you have you experienced that as well, or are you kind yeah. of like aware of all the things? Well, one of the things I'll mention about anxiety is that anxiety. We have a, a phrase we often use in therapy that anxiety is what we feel and we don't know how to feel. That anxiety isn't a core emotion in the same way that uh, anger, sadness, fear, disgust, excitement, and desire are core emotions. So anxiety has a particular flavor that shows up uh, for everybody differently. Some people get it much more cognitively. Other people get it much more somatically or a combination of the two. But when I'm talking about the unique physiological signature of emotions, I'm mentioning primarily what we call those core emotions. And we see anxiety as something that sits outside of that. It's more like the, you know, the check engine light gets turned on, but it doesn't ever really get turned off. And our body is sending a signal saying, hey, there's some unfinished business, or there's something that that is hard to stay with in this moment. So anxiety, without getting into the total complexity of which emotions are primary and which are secondary and which are, you know, survival based and which are trauma responses and whatnot. Um, I'll say that anxiety sits just a little bit outside of those other categories, but yeah, like with you, I too have learned to feel, feel through the, the specific language of my physicality and the way that, you know, my throat gets tight when I'm feeling something. And so that way, because I've paired those two things together over time and spent lots and lots and lots of time in therapy and in my own personal work, really decoding these sensory messages, there are still some things that are confusing and new, but I have a general sense that when I'm feeling like in, I'm enjoying something, it goes one direction. And when something is hard or scary, it's going the other direction. And I can work within that 
Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So you're saying anxiety is kind of like our check engine light to look exactly. at what's really going on. Yeah. Okay. Or what we sometimes say, it's like, it's like the fire alarm, but sometimes the fire alarm goes off because of hairspray or smoke in the oven and not necessarily because there's a fire. So it's kind of like our signal that says, hey, do a little bit more work. And mm. unlike some of the other emotions that tell us specifically, you know, here's, here's what the problem is and here's what the solution is and here's what feels good. Oh, that makes so much sense. I feel like there's so much processing I have to do just on that specific <laughs> part of this. You might oh really like, um, there's a great book called Living Like You Mean It mm-hmm. about this and another great book called It's Not Always Depression. Those two books tend to be my go-tos when trying to explain the specifics of emotions as bodily processes and how anxiety is similar but different from those and how we can learn to work with them. Okay, awesome. I will definitely be giving those a read and I'll put them in the show notes if anyone else wants oh, great. to read them. Um, I have two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, the first one is to give, or I guess like what are some ways that you, if you're feeling really disconnected or disembodied, that you bring yourself back into the present oh, yeah. moment or remind yourself that you're still you and here? Yeah. Uh, touch, movement, temperature change. A comforting language, uh, touch, like I was saying, touch, but touch of my own body. So holding myself or resting my head in my hands or, you know, scratching the bottom of my foot. So any of those things, um, and often being in nature, putting my feet on the ground, uh, putting my back up against a tree, feeling myself rooted in some, some sensory that stimulates me to know I'm here, not somewhere else. Okay. That's awesome. That's very awesome. Um, my last question for you is a very, very, very big change of pace. And I just okay. wanted to prepare you first. <laughs> okay. 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 This is very important. Uh, would you rather every single Sunday night at approximately 8.30 p.m., a seven-year-old little boy comes and meets you where you're at and he has everything he needs to play you in a game of hangman and he sets up and he puts up his little table it doesn't matter where you are you could be at work or at home in a session at dinner with someone and he shows up and he plays you in hangman and he's really mean about it and he beats you every single time and there's just there's never a (laughs) chance when you win because he's so good would you rather that or every time you brushed your teeth somebody in your life you don't know who it is but someone that you're connected to turns into a hamster for the duration of you brushing your teeth (laughs) oh my goodness um i'm gonna choose the hangman experience oh yeah because well i wouldn't want to make a choice on behalf of somebody else and not know who it was (laughs) and what the impact of that would be on them (laughs) and i have no problem losing (laughs) okay that makes sense I'm like, I'll, I'll choose something that, uh, doesn't even feel that annoying or irritating or painful for me over making a choice over someone else's bodily autonomy. (laughs) That makes sense. That would be very rude if you made someone turn into a hamster just for some (laughs) dental care. Oh my gosh. And you get to kind of grow up with the kid and see him grow up and continue to be good at hangman and build a connection and it all ties in and I love it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Hillary, uh, where can people find your work? Yeah, you can find me uh, on social media, Hillary Leanna McBride on Instagram and Hillary L. McBride on Twitter. 
got a website, hillarylmcbride.com, uh, on the podcast, The Liturgist Podcast and Other People's Problems, which is about my therapy practice. And uh, I've got a new book coming out at the end of this year called The Ooh. Wisdom of Your Body. So that'll be out in a few months from now. So keep your eye on my social media and online for that. There'll be lots more book release details coming all about this specific topic. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. It's called The Wisdom of Your Body, you said? It is. Yes. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Everybody keep an eye out for that. We will read it together and learn all of the things. But amazing. Thank you so, so much for giving your time today to answer all of these questions and just share your wisdom and knowledge and and just being willing oh, to talk welcome. to someone you've never met before. <laughs> oh, yeah. My pleasure, Jackie. Thank you so much. And such a joy to be in this conversation with you today. Thank you so much. Well, you have such a good time up in Canada and enjoy the beautiful <laughs> weather today. Thank you. Bye. Bye.